Hey, Bankless Nation, we've got exciting 60 minutes planned for you. We are doing a current state of DeFi panel with three of the biggest DeFi brains that we know. David, I know you're excited about this, man, because it's all you've been talking about <laughs> for the past two weeks. <laughs> What excites you about this panel? Why uh, why is this so interesting? Yeah, the uh, the context for this panel is that I went on to a a, a different panel a couple of weeks ago, uh, and it didn't really it wasn't what I wanted it to be when it was a what is the current state of DeFi panel, uh, and so I got uh, I got teased by what I thought was going to be a really dope panel, but we are. Now we actually are doing it. I think Bankless can do it better. Uh, so Bankless is doing what is the current state of DeFi panel. And we have brought on three big brain guests to give us their perspective as to what they see on the frontier. We've got Santiago Santos of Parify Capital. We have Vance Spencer from Framework Ventures. And we have Spencer Noon from the Variant Fund. And these guys are both DeFi investors. And so they think like investors, but they are importantly also DeFi users. And so they know about it from both sides. Like they use this stuff and they invest in this stuff. Uh, and so uh, I think this is gonna be a fantastic panel to go through a ton of topics really quickly. Uh, if you have consumed Bankless content since you're viewing this, I'm assuming you have, uh, you know that we kind of tend to really take our time and distill stuff. This is gonna be a little bit quicker. This is, we're gonna, we're gonna move really quickly through a lot of subjects. Zippy. It's gonna be zippy, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and so if you guys like this content, like this panel content, let us know. We have other ideas about panel panel content. Uh, this is kind of in contrast to the AMA stuff that we do. Uh, and so if, if you like this panel content, leave a comment in the show notes. Also like and subscribe to the YouTube because we do these at least every single week. Uh, so Ryan, without any further ado, shall we just go ahead and get right into it? Yeah. And uh, guys, of course, like any other AMA, you can leave questions in YouTube. We will get to those questions if we have time as uh, the, the, the panel has an opportunity to. Um, before we get into the panel, though, we want to thank the sponsors that make this episode possible. Synthetics is Ethereum's decentralized derivatives liquidity protocol. What does that mean? Synthetics is a platform for creating and trading synthetic assets, which are assets that are priced via an oracle rather than bids or asks. Traders can use the Quenta exchange, which hosts and trades all of the synthetic assets created by Synthetics. Traders on Quenta can trade synthetic tokens like SBTC, SOIL, or SDFI. Because Quenta is powered by Synthetics, traders experience zero slippage on their trades. No, I didn't mean low slippage, I meant no slippage, because that is the power of the Synthetics platform. No slippage on your trades. You can also easily short assets with iSynths, which are synthetic assets that move inversely to their target asset. Synthetics isn't just for traders. Developers can build on Synthetics to access the infinite liquidity offered by synthetic assets, or investors can stake collateral to the protocol and earn fees that the protocol collects. If you're a trader and you're looking for a trading platform not found in the legacy world, check out quenta.io. If you're a developer or you just want to earn yield on your collateral, go to www.synthetics.io where you can stake your SNX or ETH and earn fees from Synthetics. Aave is a borrowing and lending protocol on Ethereum and just recently released Aave version 2, which has a ton of cool new features that makes using Aave even more powerful. 
With Aave, you can leverage the full power of DeFi, Money Legos, Yield, and Composability all in one application. On Aave, there are a ton of assets that you can deposit in order to gain yield, and all of those same assets can also be borrowed from the protocol if you have deposited collateral. Here you can see me getting a 200 USDC loan against my portfolio of a number of different DeFi tokens and ETH. I'll choose a variable interest rate because it's a lower rate than the stable interest rate option, but I could choose the stable interest rate option if I wanted to lock that interest rate in permanently. One of Aave's V2 features is the ability to swap collateral without having to withdraw your assets, trade them on Uniswap, and then deposit them back into Aave. Aave does all of this for you all in one seamless transaction, so you don't have to repay loans in order to change the collateral you have backing them. Check out the power of Aave at Aave.com. That's A-A-V-E.com. Hey, Bankless, welcome back. This is our big brain DeFi panel. We are really excited to talk about the current state of DeFi. We're going to whip through a whole bunch of topics here today. Keep this zippy. As David said in the intro, I want to introduce you to Santiago Santos of Parify Capital. We've got Spencer Noon from Variant Fund, and we've got Vance Spencer from Framework Ventures. Guys, how are you doing today? It's great to have you. That's yeah, great to be here. Thanks, Ryan. Awesome. Thanks, David. All right. Everyone looks good. You guys are looking good. Ready to talk some DeFi. I'm sure uh, you don't do this on a regular basis. I'm sure this <laughs> is a, a rare event for you. But let's let's start with this, because I think this is important. Um, the definition of DeFi. How do we define DeFi? I was team, call this thing open finance. I felt that was a bit more fluid. Lost that battle. This ended up being called DeFi. How do we define what it actually is? Spencer, can we start with you? Uh, yeah. So thanks for having me, guys. Um, I mean, this is obviously pretty difficult. I think the crypto community generally sucks at coming up with names for things. I think one thing is for sure, DeFi is not Bitcoin. Um, so just wanted to get that out there first. But I would say, you know, we have this these financial applications, these primitives that are that are built. For me, DeFi is that, and principally, I think their cash flows being on chain is the core thing that kind of defines them and unites them. So um, when it touches something that's on chain, I think of it as being DeFi. It's a spectrum, um, but that's a that's probably the litmus test. So it touches something on chain, on chain cash flows, but Bitcoin is not DeFi. Vance, would you add anything to that? Do you disagree? Is Bitcoin not DeFi? Um, I I think that. Uh, Bitcoin is a subset of DeFi. Um, I, I don't think the two are, are necessarily mutually exclusive. I kind of build up my understanding of blockchains and of DeFi kind of from from three steps. Number one, you know, blockchains are something that are built for a trust, trustless transfer of value. Number two, blockchains are an open development platform that anybody can write logic on. And so anything that's on a blockchain that has logic built on on top of it is DeFi. Um, you know, whether that's an escrow contract, whether that's trade, you know, from one address to another, whether that's a complex derivatives protocol. Um, that's how I kind of build up the definition of DeFi in my mind. Santiago, we, we haven't yet very much used the term decentralization. Uh, and maybe that's intentional from our other two panelists, but is decentralization part of DeFi? What is DeFi? Yeah, I, I think um, for me, what I think about DeFi is uh, embedding it logic in a smart contract that executes in a very predictable, reliable, and trustworthy manner. Uh, certainly, like the sediment layer, which is Ethereum or some other chain, 
uh, you're relying on some degree of decentralization to make sure that that smart contract executes the way that the, the you know it makes that state transition, if you will. But for me, DeFi, is your, as Van said, you are transferring some value, and that might not just be you know tokens. It might be NFTs. It might be other things that have value via some sort of digital scarcity attached to it. But generally speaking. Um, yeah, it is for me the most exciting thing about DeFi is the predictability of a smart contract to do a specific logic, if then statements that, um, and you can apply that to any money verb, if you will. So uh, when we talk about like DeFi, what it is and what it isn't, can we apply that to any specific platforms, right? So Vance thinks that Bitcoin is maybe a, a subset of, of DeFi. Spencer might disagree. Uh, another investor might call Solana or Binance Chain DeFi. Uh, some other people might disagree. Are, what about these platforms? Is Solana DeFi? Is Binance Chain DeFi? Uh, what's your take on that? Where do you draw the line? I think the space is exploring all these trade-offs right now. And so I, I think a lot of it is, you know, we will see. Um, but a lot of things will trend towards kind of either side of the spectrum. So like, I'm sure at some point, someone will build an interoperable Google sheet with Ethereum and they'll be transferring money around on a spreadsheet that settles on ETH and they'll call that DeFi. To me, that, that falls outside the kind of scope of what is DeFi because it's, you know, naturally kind of decentralized. Um, and so, you know, the, the criteria for, you know, what is enough decentralization to qualify as DeFi is kind of the heart of the question. And I think with, with decentralization, you only really find out that you need it when the chips are down, when things are breaking, when, you know, regulations come in, when, you know, there's adversarial actors on a network, that's when decentralization really matters. And so oftentimes you only find out what's decentralized when, you know, things are breaking or things aren't going that well. And, you know, I think you can see that on things like Binance where it shuts down, uh, you know, where that would never happen with Ethereum or, you know, the Polygon bridge, which, you know, isn't operable for hours on end when there's a market crash. Those things are not DeFi just because they've kind of fallen under that exclusion criteria. And I think more of these blockchain platforms that are not Ethereum will eventually not be DeFi as well. Santiago, do you have yeah, an opinion that. on what is and is not DeFi? Yeah, very succinctly, it is minimizing counterparty risk because that's really the only reason why you want to do DeFi. Otherwise, you know, if you're doing uh, BSC or some other chain, you know, you might go there for yield. You might go there for some other reason. If you're, especially if you're like a Binance user, um, and and but but largely, I think where this space really is going, where you have large financial institutions, aggregators, where a lot of retail will end up interacting. Uh, with these platforms, uh, and they might not even know that they're interacting in a DeFi context is, I think when you're providing liquidity, uh, when you're interacting in the system, you want to make sure that you're minimizing counterparty risk, right? Yeah, I'll give you an example. In, in a day like Black Thursday, where you have a market collapse, the first thing I thought when I woke up is, I didn't think, I wasn't concerned about Aave or Compound being insolvent. I mean, you could have looked at the state of liquidations in real time in DeFi and said, okay, things are working. Of course, it's congested. Of course, the keeper system is a little bit flawed, but things are working in a very predictable way. The thing that I wasn't 100% sure on was, are our centralized counterparties solvent? And to me, that's the most important thing. And you see that over and over again in the, in the normal financial system in 2008 um, in Robinhood. Like in these instances of market failure, I think traditional finance is quite fragile. And DeFi time and time again has proven to be a very anti-fragile system that is very adversarial and is by design 
can't be insolvent. Not only can they not be insolvent, but a frequent uh, line that I like to, I like about DeFi and I hear a lot about DeFi is uh, can't be evil. Protocols can't be evil. Uh, and so uh, let's turn to, to Spencer. What does the, the phrase can't be evil mean to you inside the context of DeFi? Uh, yeah, I, I think it's it kind of goes to this idea that anyone can audit um, the code of the platforms that they're using, right? So... Um, the code is deterministic it's being you know executed and you as a user have kind of like all of the tools at your disposal to figure out if it's evil or not it can like be evil right there are there are smart contracts that can do things that are antagonistic to users um so i don't know if i like necessarily agree with that but um yeah does that answer your question yeah, totally. Uh, may maybe it's it's more like uh, we can all audit the evilness, right? Where we can all exactly check on how exactly evil these applications are. Um, Vance or Santiago yeah, and I think, or, or Spencer, go well, ahead. Well, I would just add one thing too, I think is important is that users in DeFi have agency and that they can exit the system if um, the, the set of rules changes, right? So you have, I think, like we were saying before, decentralization, obviously it's a spectrum. There are some um, protocols where there are only a few parameters, if any, that can be changed. There are others where their smart contracts are like truly upgradable um, in you know a very mm -hmm. wide or, uh, kind of amount of um, changes that can be made. And for that, you you can leave. And mm -hmm. so I think right. it's it's it, it does also one thing that you always have to come back to with DeFi is that the users have the agency to leave. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Like uh, you saw yesterday's statement by the CFTC, one of the commissioners saying, well, you know, in DeFi, you know, uh, things can be manipulated and can't be enforced. I'm like, wait, wait a minute. That's that's not true. I mean, the traditional financial system goes back to what Spencer's saying. You don't have agency, right? People understand that when you deposit your money in a bank, you have no idea what they're going to use it for. Now, you rely on regulators to kind of have some sort of oversight into what banks are doing. But the only oversight that they're doing is like top, like what is it like a uh, bank efficiency ratios and making sure that they're quasi solvent uh but they're stress tests and those tend to fail whereas in DeFi, you kind of you are your own bank you control your assets right uh and so that's where um you know i would i would challenge when when someone says you know in DeFi things are perfectly transparent you're in real time evident for anyone can be a watchdog and anyone can infer if if, if there's a change to a smart contract if there's a change if validates are down or not executing things in the way that things are, are are intended to then you can exit the system and i think it's that ability for anyone to be a watchdog that keeps the system mm -hmm. uh, uh much more um resilient something that we've seen lately is we've seen uh, brian brooks being hired by binance us uh and we've also seen Co a coinbase also hire a, a particular regulator who you know used to be part of regulation and now is part of coinbase and one thing that really concerns me and ryan when we chat about this on the weekly rollups or in, or just privately is this is kind of what we've seen before uh is defi perfectly antagonistic to this is is defi the counterpart towards all this re revolving door politics that uh we're trying to escape from or is that is that is there something else there um vance let's turn that to you and and uh do you mean that you know people from the government wouldn't come work for a DeFi protocol or, or in in what sense well even if they did is does, does it really change the nature of the protocol right can it can a, a regulator uh, even perhaps a, a benefit a benevolent regulator or perhaps a corrupt regulator does the DeFi protocol actually uh, absorb corruption in the same way that you know uh, the traditional nation state regulating body does that that we've seen throughout the end of time 
Yeah, I mean, it, you know, blockchains don't have a, a Wi-Fi connection. They, they can't tell uh, who's good or who's bad. And, and uh, you know, smart contracts are the exact same. And so their ability to be, um, you know, kind of taken over is relatively small. I will say that um, because tokens are, you know, governance votes and, and those are effectively purchasable or, or borrowable, there is that attack vector. And there's also the attack vector of, you know, regulators regulating by decree. Um, a lot of their power in this space comes from the fact that, uh, you know, one statement, one speech, one indication can send prices downwards. Um, and regulators oftentimes will do everything they can not to kind of draw formal lines in the sand um, and instead kind of rule by, by kind of uh, you know, public speaking. And so I think that's kind of one of the bigger tools that they have in DeFi where they don't have elsewhere. Um, but ultimately, I think regulation is going to be good for the space and, and it might not kind of break exactly the way we want to see it. But the total addressable market of this stuff is so large and it's moving so quickly that if we're able to embrace regulation in a way that's constructive, you know, it's going to be a positive. That's where we want to get to you next, Vance. So maybe we'll, uh, we'll, we'll stick with you for a minute. Um, we often talk about, you know, Chris Berninski has used this phrase, phrase infinite white space to describe sort of the frontier that is DeFi, the frontier that is uh, crypto. Um, what I want to know from, from our panelists is how big is this frontier exactly? You just use the word TAM, total addressable market size. But like, quantify this for us. We, we all remember the birth the birth of the internet, or we were young when, when it was uh, birth, but it's a big deal, right? And I think a lot of institutional investors harken back to the early days of the internet. Is DeFi as big as the internet? How do we quantify its size, Vance, to you? Yeah, so in the US, there are about 3 trillion uh, in market cap of financial services providers that exist within the traditional ecosystem. Um, and if you add banks to that, it's more, you know, maybe double or triple. And so, you know, you're talking about, and I just always go in orders of magnitude, probably $10 trillion to $100 trillion of, of market cap opportunity, assuming that DeFi doesn't just reinvent the stack, it actually makes it better. Um, and I think with all kind of, you know, digital transformations, that's proven to be the case. And so I think it's that large of an opportunity. Um, and maybe that encompasses the base layers and the apps or just the apps. But, you know, I think it's probably all encompassing. And so 10 to 100 trillion is about as large as I think it is. Um, which would make it bigger than the internet. 10 yeah. to 100 trillion. Okay. And so like, are we talking there, uh, Vance, about like Bitcoin as well being incorporated in this? Like yeah. often Bitcoiners talk about the total addressable market of, of gold, 8 trillion to 10 trillion. Is that something different when you're doing the quantification of the DeFi market size? It's different. Um, I think, uh, you know, if you think about, so say the TAM for DeFi is, is 100 trillion, um, and you say the TAM for, for Bitcoin is, is you know, 12 trillion, which is the market cap of gold. I think Bitcoin has a better chance of fulfilling more of the TAM just because it's, it, it's you know, relatively a neutral technology. Um, you can cleanly put it into a regulatory bucket. There's not things building on top of things that you need to regulate. Um, so I think Bitcoin will probably you know, have all of that TAM or exceed it at some point. I think these financial apps, it largely depends on regulations, you know, what percentage of that TAM it increases. Does, does the world look like all of these DeFi protocols are offshore and, you know, we're doing this regulatory hopscotch or is it kind of, you know, embedded into the traditional financial ecosystem? I think that's the determinant of, of the TAM um, or the percentage of that that it occupies. But um, I think, you know, they're both going to be absolutely gigantic and there's definitely no lack of opportunity. Spencer, what do you think about this? 
Yeah, I think I think DeFi is a like a superset of everything. Basically, is how I would think about it. Um, all of the world's value will be instantiated on blockchains. It will clear on different la- layers of you know blockchains, whether that's Ethereum because it's um, you know like requires an extremely secure blockchain or a layer two or a sidechain or any other um, smart contract platform where there's like some type of financial activity happening. I think like zooming out right. Um, the internet allowed us to kind of send packets of information. Crypto and DeFi allows us to send for the first time packets of value. And that's the most disruptive thing that has kind of like happened, I would say. So um, I think it eats everything. It eats the world. Santiago, DeFi eating the world. Tell us about this. But also, yeah. how are the traditional financial systems going to act? What's Wall Street got to say about this? What do traditional banks have to say about this. What about our friend Wells, Wells Fargo? What's Wells Fargo going to say when all of this transformation starts eating their core business? Yeah, I mean, like ultimately they won't have a choice uh, because a consumer will demand it, right? When you can earn higher yield on chain. Uh, when I was at JP Morgan, this was rat poison and now they're banking crypto. Why? I don't think Jamie Dimon woke up one day and said in the board meeting, we, we have to do this. It's If we don't do it, you know, crypto banks are gonna eat our lunch. And so, look. I mean, the global financial services industry is twenty trillion. Uh, and to Vance, like to go off of what Vance just said, you know, it's very antiquated. It's very uh, there's a lot of friction in the system, and it's not capturing the all of the value, right? And um, and nor is it capturing all of servicing all of the TAM, right? There are many people that are unbanked; they don't have access to credit. And so, really, DeFi for me is about not only making doing things as spencer said in a much like faster better cheaper way than the traditional financial system so by virtue of that you expand right what it is today from 20 to maybe 40 but it's also capturing anyone that has an internet connection can now transfer value and that has never happened in the history of the world and so when you connect all of that and you leverage the infrastructure the internet and the distribution of smartphones then you start getting to i think what vance is saying more to closer to 100 or 100 plus now you layer on top of that the metaverse and things like nfts where you're capturing Essentially, you're combining global capital markets with digital scarcity and creating new forms of non-sovereign like stores of value and mediums of exchange. If you combine all of that, you get to 100 plus in my mind. Guys, I remember. Yeah, and I think oh, the rocket. Ahead, go, I was just going to say, I think the rocket fuel here is that smart contracts offer developers unprecedented leverage. You have never had more kind of. Um, value that you could pack into a line of code than you can with a smart contract. And uh, I think like the prime example is Uniswap. I looked at this uh, um, calculation maybe in March, and I think where we came out was that every line of Uniswap code based on its market cap um, was something like $18 million, right? And, and all that is to say that there are very few lines of code in in, in these wait, protocols. Wait, 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 every, every line of code was worth kind of uni market cap was right so if you took the the market cap of uni right yeah and you divided it by the number of lines of code in the uniswap <laughs> smart contracts you got to you know it was like 18 million at the time and, wow. and and all that i mean obviously it's not this is not perfect science but it just yeah. shows you kind of the relative level of um programming that is necessary i mean think about coinbase versus uniswap you have dozens of people working at one protocol versus, you know, hundreds, you know, thousand plus at um, a company, and they're doing roughly the same order of magnitude of volume. That is the opportunity, right? Everything is about to be disrupted because of smart contracts. And I think that's why, like, it's, it's, I, I don't like to um, 
value like the addressable market just because it's like so so big that it like would make my head explode. It also sounds silly, I think, to some like outside investors when they hear us talk about these things. Like ten to a hundred trillion is the is the TAM. The TAM is everything. <laughs> like like the whole world. Oh, like, but I, yeah, I also think there's uh, one thing I think about is that um, like the internet was invented in in the mid '90s, like around the time that you know probably most of us were born, and like that is such a huge development and i don't think that has even been fully you know appreciated or, or explored in terms of the tam of what that means to to have a hyper connected world like it would be like being kind of born within 20 years of the wheel being invented or you know fire being invented like i'm sure you know all almost all measures of of uh of you know life uh, quality were went up over the next kind of 200 years and i think that will be a very similar thing with not only internet but but also defi um and i see those things are very intertwined Guys, I remember in 2017, everyone was really, really stoked because the institutions were coming. The institutions were coming, or at least that was the narrative at the time. Turns out uh, that took about four years to actually become true. But 2021 does seem to have been the year that institutions put Bitcoin on the balance sheet, institutions starting to allocate to Ether, uh, and perhaps now also looking into DeFi and, and NFTs and, and understanding the excitement there. So why in your mind would you say are institutions here today? What do we have in 2021 that we didn't have in 2017 that are enticing institutions to finally come? Um, Spencer, let's start with you. Uh large amounts of liquidity it really comes down to that right like institutions can access these markets and put on size in them and and that's kind of a testament to um yield farming liquidity mining right like the 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 innovation happening through a lot of the the core low level um DeFi protocols i think um for me i don't get excited about institutions with DeFi um at all i i think they uh are just not the right users for this this is about again um kind of giving just individuals financial tools that they've never had before such that they don't have to go to an institution who rips them off right or um takes a massive cut and so um yeah i think i think the idea of an institution is is being challenged as well right with things like DAOs, investment clubs um yeah it, there's a long way to go this is a huge battle but um, yeah, I, I totally understand why they're here. Spencer, I, I was talking to you, David, when we were preparing notes for, for what questions to ask the panelists. And when we got to the institutions question, like par part of my discussion was like, uh, whether the institutions come or not doesn't really matter because what DeFi is actually doing is we're building new institutions, right? right. So come aboard if you guys want, but back to Santiago's point, like they're gonna be forced into it whether they come early or they come late. Uh, so echoing what uh, yeah. you say. Yeah. No, I so think it's a great point that yeah. Santiago made. Like um, you, you talk to any TradFi person and you explain them Compound or Aave and they eat it up and get it immediately, right? And and they're starting to use it. Um, but I just, yeah, again, I, I just think that's not like the end goal. So Santiago, what would you add to that? So your background is, is JP Morgan. So you've seen the, the institutions from the inside. Are they coming or is this more about building new institutions or is it a bit of both? It's definitely both. I mean, I, I do think that there's two things that are different this time in 2017. One, there's much more infrastructure in place and much more Lindy to the space. Um, there is also COVID certainly, I think, was an accelerant to, for instance, stablecoin adoption. And if you look at the 
Circle, I think, put out a, a metric last summer that said like there's been like a 600, 700% increase. Uh, and I think it was like, you know, year to date in the number of non-crypto businesses using stable coins. And you ask why? Well, because people can't go to a bank. And so digital money becomes much more, it becomes the solution, right? Um, so anyone that has used a stable coin doesn't want to go back to a wire transfer. So if you're Starbucks, if you're Walmart and you can pay your, you know, coffee growers in Sumatra with stable coins, well, why, why else would you do something differently? Right? So it really challenges the operating flow. Why? The only reason why technology has ever gotten adopted is because it's faster, it's better, and it's cheaper. Right? And so stable coins fulfill that criteria relative to a wire transfer. So I think COVID was an accelerant to a digital transformation. Like you would have looked at Asia and the way that they've like, totally leapfrog financial infrastructure and no one in asia ever thinks of like brick and mortar banks everything is just sort of very native with a smartphone like wechat and cacao like so i think like you extend that further in the us and other places and people have become much more um uh, you know in tune i think stable coins are a gateway drug to crypto to DeFi, and so i think that's different and for banks look i mean <clears throat> the only the only department that keeps growing in banks is back office and compliance and operations all of those three can be totally like collapsed if you operate through a smart contract now you look at what Aave is doing with a permission market like whitelisted market where jp morgan can underwrite loans and borrow from another counterparty and interact with the customer directly what does that do to their operation well all of a sudden they can process order of magnitude or two of mortgages and service a much wider audience and so you know going back to this thing like finance is perhaps the only sector that hasn't truly caught off to the internet. And for the first time, banks are realizing that. And I think they are much, much more um, friendly and welcoming to this technology than most people assume they are. Uh, because they appreciate that they can, any anything, any technology that can strip away fat from their P&L, they're gonna be very incentivized to adopt. Vance, what's your take on whether or not we can just build our own DeFi native institutions? And if we can, what is what is really different about these that are um, that are built on the inside rather than coming from the outside in? What what does this new era of institutions look like? Uh, I think it's I think it's path dependent based on on the regulatory landscape. Like I, I can see a version of the future where. Um, consumer banking apps are able to interact with all DeFi protocols. And I think that things like Coinbase Wallet, which has, you know, a million users is, is largely a representation of that future. And that is a future where we can build our own institutions and we use the crypto exchanges as the on-ramps. And you know, that's kind of our banking stack, um, you know, and, and I think that will be kind of the way that the world plays out. I think the other version of the world is um, where uh, regulations are, are uh, onerous and protocols are basically kind of separated into this kind of like shadow banking institutional world um, where, you know, Maker and Nave and all those things are kind of these, these offshore, uh, you know, banks. Um, and, I, and I think that's also a gigantic market, but it looks a lot more like, you know, kind of how Binance developed um, and their kind of re restrictions on a regulatory or jurisdictional basis. Um, and in that case, I, I think that it's going to be harder for these things to grow. Um, so I, I think, you know, I'm optimistic and I think that, you know, regulators will come around and realize that these things are net positive, but it's extremely path dependent. Um, and, you know, it's just worth acknowledging that. You're almost implying, Vance, that there's a possibility we kind of go through a, a brief winter period of time in DeFi as regulators maybe come down on it relatively harshly, mm -hmm. or at least regula regulators in some countries. Do you think that's a, a likely uh, path? I mean, it's... 
it's I don't think it's a likely path. I think all of all of this will take years and years and years to to kind of sort out. And there's going to be you know regulators taking out kind of the worst actors. Like you look at the ICOs of 2017, they went off they went off and, and got the worst people, the big connects of the world, you know, in the scam ICOs. And I think they will will go after those. And then the question is, you know, how far do they want to take it? Do they want to use that as precedent for further regulatory action, or or is that kind of the amount of of uh, you know kind of uh, regulation that they want to see in the market. And I think ultimately it will end up being the former. Um, like they'll want to get bad actors out of the space. They'll want to kind of, you know, honor what consumers are already using and what they want to use in the future and that there won't actually be a winter. Um, and so I'm super bullish on, on the regulatory future of the U S I know that that's probably a minority opinion, but you know, we talk to regulators and, and for the most part, they just want to see this space grow in a way that is helpful to consumers and it's constructive ultimately. Um, and so I think there's really important work going on and it will continue to happen and, and ultimately it'll be successful. I think hey, just to add to that, a good parallel is how they try to regulate the entertainment industry, things like YouTube and, and, and like, certainly you have like the early instantiations of that, like LimeWire and Casa that in Napster's that obviously like, you know, there were challenges with that, but ultimately you couldn't stop this, this train. Um, and, and I think like we, we've been at this for 10 years. Uh, DeFi is certainly like younger, it's two, three years. But um, I think regulators like are, are using that as a parallel. And we've used it when we talk to them. It's like, think about how you try to regulate something like YouTube. Well, you have to maybe create certain standards that if a YouTube video has a certain amount of time, you can only use, like, you define how you redefine, like, IP and copyright. In a similar manner, I think regulators appreciate that there's a lot of innovation here and they want to be competitive on a global scale. So um, I think they want to sensibly regulate this technology with, with new regulation, not old regulations that apply to an antiquated financial system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, one other thing that I would just quickly add um, is, is that there are a lot of people working behind the scenes in our industry to interface with regulators and other people that kind of work for the government. There is no like doom, gloom, black swan that's coming from out of nowhere to be like, oh man, the industry is canceled. Like that's not <laughs> happening. And so, but it's funny how like it. you go on crypto Twitter, right? On any given day and it's like, oh man, this SEC commissioner said that or whatever. And, and it's just one data point. I just think it's worth kind of all of us um, just kind of understanding that that this is an evolution of the financial system. Ultimately, it will be you know folded into society. It's going to require a lot of collaboration from many different stakeholders, and it's happening. Um, so yeah. Guys, I want to turn the conversation to crypto dollars because crypto dollars, I think, kind of took everyone by surprise in 2018 and then continued to take everyone by surprise in 2019, which was with their immense growth in supply. In 2021, crypto dollars alone went from $29 billion to $105 billion in total supply. And also in 2021 alone, we went from $308 billion in monthly volume to $766 billion in monthly volume just last May. Guys, where are all the crypto dollars coming from? Why are they here? Uh, Spencer, let's turn to you first. Uh, well, for starters, um, self-plug, I run a, a newsletter called Our Network. It's about on-chain analytics and kind of data analysis. And if anyone wants to dig into this topic, uh, we would fund it. So reach out to me. Um, I think my hypothesis and what I've seen on-chain is that um, it's to chase yield, right? Like they're going to um, DeFi protocols, they're farming, uh, they're being used on exchanges for trading or as collateral. 
Um, and, and that number is growing because the, the appetite is, you know, only continuing. Vance, any, any opinions about crypto dollars? Why are they here? Is it, is there other stuff other than yield or is it all about the yield? Um, there, there's a, there's a few different trades that you can put on that are just yield generative that are, you know, within the, the strike zone of, of what kind of most institutions and hedge funds do. And I think a, a good portion of, of the of the stablecoin growth has been for, for things like the cash and carry trade, where you're basically harvesting the yield of, of dated futures on exchanges. Um, you know, probably that I would say that's, you know, a quarter. I would say another quarter is kind of like, you know, emerging markets, uh, people that are using um, U.S. dollars uh, instead of through their current uh, native currency. Um, an interesting anecdote there is that uh, when you go to the foreign, ex uh, foreign exchange counter in uh, Kowloon in Hong Kong, they don't quote you U.S. dollars, they'll quote you USDT. And so it's just wow. remarkable the extent to which that's grown to be a real phenomenon in, in uh, emerging markets. Um, and then, you know, the other kind of half, it's, uh, it's a mystery. I don't think anybody knows, but it's, it's just a global phenomenon where people are putting cash in. And it's not, once it goes on a blockchain, it's not leaving. And they're doing yield farming with it. They're having fun. They're using it to pay people. Um, and so I think, you know, if we were to really dig into the data, we'd find out it's a lot more international than we think. Um, and it also has a diverse array of participants from huge hedge funds to people that are just sitting in their basements um, yield farming. Santiago, what do you think about this, uh, especially what Vance was saying at the end of, of uh, crypto dollars being relatively sticky? Once the dollars, the fiat crosses that bridge into this new frontier, it tends to stay there. Is that the case? Or like some critics would say, look, guys, once all the yield evaporates in the next bear cycle, all these dollars are going to just disappear along with the yield. They came because of the yield. They're going to go when the yield disappears. What's your thought on how sticky crypto dollars are as a use case and the growth potential there? Yeah, well, I would challenge the assumption that yields will go down. Um, just full stop, and I can get into why. But uh, no, no, I think, look, again, it goes back to the usability of a digital coin versus having dollars in a bank account. You know, not only is it just your your own bank, but there is, you know, people people continue to criticize DeFi because it is all speculation, shit coins and all this stuff and yield farming. At the end of the day, like, I think more and more people are waking up to this idea that depositing your USDC in Aave or Compound, forget about the yield for a minute, even if there was no yield, you're in control of that. And there's greater certainty. And I think people outside the US where you have different regimes and not as strong of a system to appreciate the, the certainty, the higher degree of security that you can have by having a digital dollar. Um, now, of course, I, I would like to see more truly decentralized stable coins. I think that is a frontier in DeFi that has a lot of it experimentation. But, you know, I think that's the next sort of wave where you see something like, you know, Faye or some other projects that are trying to experiment in this frontier. Right. Okay. Tell us why yields aren't going down. Well, first well, of all, tell where they're coming from, because some people don't even know that where the yields coming from and then make the case for why they're not going down. Well, a number of reasons yields are either subsidized by sort of a combination of like native tokens, right? When you're yield farming, that that's one element where protocols might issue you their own governance, their own token. And so that has value. Um, the other component is just by virtue of utilization. I mean, there is a lot of demand to perhaps borrow these stable coins. So for instance, you know, uh, a subset of participants are looking to go levered long, for instance, or borrow stable coins to go 
farm and do other things with them. Uh, so that's another, you know, when you think about the utilization curve of what determines yields in these money markets, that's another component. Um, and, and, and the third piece of why yields are not necessarily coming down. One, there's always a risk premium attached and there will continue to be a risk premium attached to this industry because it's younger, it has smart contract risk, it's just more on the frontier. Um, and the other is uh, the ability to do derivatives, right? And create much, much like yield generative opportunities like credit default swaps and like, and like uh, you know, something like Barnbridge or Saffron, like the ability to like tranche risk and create much and, and interest bearing opportunities. I think that is a whole area that is very nascent in DeFi today, but will, um, you know, I think create my, um, increasingly will create opportunities to capture yield in the space. Okay, I have to ask. I you would this. add. I would add a oh, couple things. Uh, Go, yeah, do. If, you, if you wouldn't mind. Um, okay, so one, I don't purport to be like a trader. We we definitely don't at Variant. We don't know where the the market is going tomorrow. I think we make kind of like long term bets. I would say, um, you know, the yields are very much as we know predicated on the price of the governance tokens that people are farming, right? But I think for the reasons that Santiago um, said, and two more that I'll give that in equilibrium, I, I believe that DeFi yields will be higher than CFI yields. And and um, the two others are, one, it's like a lower cost of capital, right? Like if you're lending on um, Aave, the, the, the difference between that and interfacing with an institution like JP Morgan or something like that, they have businesses and compliance and um, people to employ, right? Like all of those things are costs that protocols do not have. Um, and And number two, is composability, right? If you are an actor in this system, you can stack yield in a way that is just kind of unimaginable in um, the financial system for most, basically all participants, except for the, the very few sophisticated ones. Awesome. I, I really like that take. Uh, the, the bureaucracy is one of the most attractive, or lack of bureaucracy is one of the most attractive features of this space. And since we have all these crypto dollars on chain, like I said, uh, over to 100 billion of them. How has that impacted market structures, right? Um, back in 2017, 2018, when we were dipping, people had to flee to fiat on exchanges, on centralized exchanges, and then maybe one step away from their bank account. But nowadays, uh, people can just exit into, uh, into crypto dollars on chain and keep them on chain. How does that change the properties of the tokens that are proximate to all of these crypto dollars? I would assume Ether has the most surface area to crypto dollars, but all, also DeFi tokens as well. Um, Vance, how do you see this, the, such a large supply of crypto dollars being so close um, in DeFi to all of these crypto assets? How does that change the market? Yeah, so relative to 2017, Bitcoin has become less important as a medium of exchange, just because that was kind of your, like, it would go all to Bitcoin or ETH to US dollars on an exchange. Like you can kind of just cut out one of those legs now. And so Bitcoin has kind of had to evolve as a result as it's not kind of the, the reserve currency of a lot of these, these kind of alternative coins. Um, so that would be kind of one of the biggest ones. But I think just the idea of user persistence and the fact that people are sticking around and it's not, you know, uh, you withdraw to your bank it's three to five days out like it comes in your bank account if you want to get back in like you're making a conscious decision to wire money to coinbase like that you know removing user friction means that people can use these things more and i would say that's kind of a general benefit of market structure as well um but just the ability for people to you know actively use those stable coins earning more governance tokens on things like ave or compound or 
curve or synthetics like that that's a huge use case and, and i think that actually helps the liquidity of those underlying protocols and allows them to to you know fend off a lot of the downwards reflexivity that they see in times of stress um so i think it's ultimately a, a huge positive I do think that with stablecoins, like we've only seen the very beginning of the story. Um, and, you know, I, I'm very bullish on things like Dyn and USD and more decentralized alternatives to things like USDC, um, which I think will eventually just kind of come to be neutered in a lot of ways as that blacklist kind of gets more expansive and the list of protocols that they're allowed to interact with becomes, you know, more and more diminished over time. So um, we'll see on, uh, on what that looks like in time, but the, People think the decentralized stablecoin race has like you know been won or you know it's it's already finished, but we're really at the very beginning of that that industry. Well, here here's another maybe new beginning, and this goes to kind of current events, which is El Salvador talking about making uh, Bitcoin a um, a like a, a legal a legally accepted yeah. currency inside of their economy. And El Salvador is, as I understand, based on the dollar today. Um, you just said something super interesting, I think, Vance, which is what we've seen in the crypto economy is that crypto dollars have started to replace Bitcoin as a medium of exchange. I'm wondering if we might start to see this on the nation state level, right? So like one thing you might get with crypto dollars is an entire financial system in a box, right? And that could service entire countries in the future? That's a hypothetical and also a question mark. Santiago, what do you think about that? Well, I'm from Mexico, as you guys know, and to me, like, um, yeah, most people don't want to hold their savings in pesos. You want to do it in a dollar. Now you can do that, a digital dollar, and interface with an entire, as you said, out of the box, so much utility. I mean, Mexicans can't even invest in this in the U.S. stock market. You can't invest in things like Tesla. Now you can't, right, through synthetic products. I mean, that the level of usability of this system, right? Usability, I'm not talking about speculation, just pure usability and access to new financial products that otherwise it would be impossible to get access to is, is huge. Um, you know, I think you look at the Turkish lira, you look at the Venezuelan peso, you look at the Zimbabwe dollar, their volatility, it, you know, <laughs> you think shitcoins on Uniswap have volatility, you haven't seen, I mean, these things like lose value time and time again, right? And so, in my mind, you know, it's 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 that is what really is exciting about DeFi is the usability. Most people talk about speculation, but don't appreciate the level of usability and what that truly means for, you know, most of the world's population. Guys, we are uh, going to. Ha oh, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, in reality, like why why do you need to have fiat, like local fiat? currency or tokens, if you will, when you can, I mean, you can do, you know, a stable coin um, or, or something like ETH. Guys, there is so much left in this DeFi conversation. We're going to get to the topics of layer twos that we all think, and some are already here, some the rest are coming. I want to talk about Uniswap V3 and who is most capable of winning the Uniswap V3 liquidity providing competition. Is it DeFi apps or is it institutions and individuals? Uh, and then there's some other conversation I want to get to, such as what does it mean to be about that life? It's this Vance Spencer quote that we got out of the first po uh, podcast with him and it's stuck in my brain. Brain. But first, we, before we get to all those questions, we're going to have to take a moment to talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make this show possible. Bankless is proud to be supported by Uniswap. Uniswap is a new paradigm in asset exchange infrastructure. Instead of a cumbersome order book system where trades are matched with other humans, Uniswap is an autonomous piece of software on Ethereum, which is what Ryan and I call a money robot. 
No human counterparties or centralized intermediaries, just autonomous code on Ethereum. Input the token you want to sell and receive the token you want to buy. Something brand new in the Uniswap ecosystem is the Uniswap Grants program is now accepting applications for grants. We have been saying this for a while and we'll say it again. DAOs have money and they are in need of labor. If you think that you have something to contribute to the Uniswap DAO, apply for a grant to Uniswap. Just look at the size of the Uniswap treasury. It's almost $3 billion. This mountain of capital is looking for labor. Do you have something of value to contribute to the Uniswap DAO? No matter how big or small your idea is, you can apply for a uni grant at unigrants.org and help steer Uniswap in the direction that you think it should go. That's exactly what we did to get Uniswap to be a sponsor for Bankless, and you can do the same for your project. Thank you, Uniswap, for sponsoring Bankless. Gemini is the world's most trusted cryptocurrency exchange. I've been a customer of Gemini since I first got into crypto in 2017, and it's been my main exchange of choice to make my crypto buys and sells. Gemini is available in all 50 states and in over 50 countries worldwide. And on Gemini, there are markets for over 30 various different crypto assets, including many of the hot DeFi tokens. And it's one of the few exchanges that has liquid die markets. Gemini just launched their Earn program, where you can earn up to 7.4% interest on 26 various crypto assets. If you're tired of paying fees in DeFi, or you don't want to worry about DeFi exploits, but you still want to earn interest on your crypto assets, Gemini Earn is the product for you. Another product I'm stoked to get my hands on is the Gemini Crypto Back Credit Card, which gives you 3% cash back on all of your purchases, but paid to you in your preferred crypto asset. When I get my Gemini credit card, I'm going to make sure that I get my cash back in ETH. So whenever I buy something, I get a little bit of ETH bonus back to me at the same time. You can open up a free account in under three minutes at gemini.com slash go bankless. And if you trade more than $100 within the first 30 days after sign up, you'll be gifted a free $15 Bitcoin bonus. Check them out at gemini.com slash go bankless. Guys, we are back with our DeFi panelists, and I want to start off the second half of this show with Uniswap V3, because Uniswap V3 and concentrated liquidity has really kind of changed the game with what it means to provide liquidity in AMMs. AMMs already changed the game, but then Uniswap V3 changed the game again, where it used to be this lazy liquidity providing paradigm, submit your assets, call it a day. Now we're kind of getting back into the world of competition, and now we're kind of seeing these order books form, these order books that look like pyramids rather than you know inverted pyramids like we would see on traditional order book ex exchanges. And so I have I want to ask you guys the question: Who is most capable of generating the most uh, fees and yield in Uniswap V3? What parties of institutions are we? In individuals who can move really quickly, or funds who can have dedicated strategists, or DeFi apps that are really yield optimizing, yield aggregating DeFi apps like Yearn. Who's the best party that's most situated to win the liquidity providing game in Uniswap V3? Uh, Santiago, let's turn to you. Yeah, I think it's DeFi apps. Uh, um, you, you've started to see a few. Uh, we're actually investors, in, 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 we're investing in, in one, incubating one. Uh, and I think it's going to be Yearn like strategies that really automate this for all kinds of users not just retail but also so, like sophisticated institutions it, it for what it's worth it is very time consuming and and uh process to manage liquidity provisioning in v3 and i think uh this is this is better suited for some like like urine to do vance same question what do you see on the horizon of who's going to win the lp game moving into the future uh it's not going to be passive lps and uh projects that don't 
uh, adapt to this new kind of regime of, of uh, capital efficiency are really gonna struggle. Partly because they're not gonna be able to get best execution, but also because they're just gonna be basically hiring other people's LPs that are lazy. Um, and you know there will just be less fees, there'll be more people LPing. There's kind of less of a pie to go around. And so I, I'm kind of bearish on those, but um, I think there will be protocols that sit on top of Uniswap and basically democratize access um, to market making uh, again, and those will be relatively profitable. But uh, yeah, I mean, there's also kind of like this, you know, kid in the basement factor that's just figured it out. And, and there's tens of thousands of those types of people that can do it themselves. I think the question will be ultimately whether they want to or whether they just want to pay urine, you know, 1%. Uh, Spencer, same question. Got any opinions on the, uh, the V3 game? Yeah, I have strong opinions. Um, I think I think everyone wins, uh, and I think it's really really early. So right now, um, you know, we don't have much of an ecosystem of apps that help you know the the quote lazy liquidity providers right now. But but that's going to happen, and I think um, people will organize. They will find a way to to um, I guess equip themselves with strategies that. Um, like more sophisticated participants have today. Um, so I think that's really cool. Something I'm seeing behind the scenes with teams, but I think like taking a step back, Uniswap is permissionless. Anyone can add a pair to Uniswap, right? And so with that, you have um, a long tail of assets that frankly, institutions are never going to touch, right? They're gonna touch them when they get bigger and they become a top pair or part of like the middle market. And so I think the beauty of Uniswap is like it, is the exchange for uh, we believe all the world's value and so um i think there is there are fees to earn for literally everyone it just it, it comes down to um kind of what pairs you're playing with i'm going to ask a quick question on uh uniswap to each of the panelists just to see your your quick gut reaction opinion do you think we'll live in a world where uniswap is the dominant amm or will we have many amms what do you think spencer uh, I would say it's it's probably a um, like a power law. I wouldn't be surprised if Uniswap um, was the dominant player. I, I actually believe it will be. I mean, look at the market share now, right? Um, there are, I mean, yeah. So you Uniswap has sixty percent market share right now. Everyone has tried everything in terms of liquidity mining programs, different AMMs, different curves, and yet vampire attacks with that. <laughs> Yes, even without all of those things, Uniswap is still winning. And I think it's, it's worth interrogating why. Um, I think obviously first mover advantage was huge, right? Liquidity begets more liquidity. You have users that are coming and trading. That's more trading fees for the LPs. I think brand and trust is also a big thing, right? So when you're a liquidity provider or a user, you want to be somewhere. Um, you want to participate on a platform where you have you know, the assurances that your money is not going to go away um, and you're going to get the best price. So yeah, it's um, it's really interesting. We, we'll have to see. Vance, what do you think? Uh, are you as bullish as Spencer on Uniswap? Or do you think there's many AMMs? Um, I think it's it's uh, like if you look at Polygon right now, there's an AMM called QuickSwap, which basically does all of their volume, and um, they dominate that area, and, and that's honestly where a lot of retail is being onboarded right now. Um, and Uniswap is is really amazing, and it's capturing you know most of the market share of these AMMs. But like they're they're kind of too principled to go and deploy there because you know Polygon is not really permissionless innovation. It's it's kind of like a federated sidechain. Um, so I think it's kind of path dependent in terms of which L2 ends up winning. 
But, you know, Uniswap being able to go on or being willing to go on to Arbitrum makes me more bullish on, on Uniswap kind of winning out, you know, in the end game. Um, but, you know, there is a world where we explore these decentralization trade-offs and another layer two or another blockchain ends up winning and Uniswap is not the AMM of that chain. Uh, so, you know, pretty path dependent, but we're extremely bullish on Uniswap. Um, we, we hold Uniswap, so disclosure, but uh, yeah. We're going to get more to layer two in just a minute, but I want to ask Santiago the same question about Uniswap versus a world of many AMMs. Yeah, I, I would think that uh, there there is possibility to have, you know, sort of like a duopoly or like two or three dominant AMMs. Uh, you know, I think like Sushi, for instance, like, look, I, I love Uniswap and what they're doing. and uh, But certainly like Sushi is, is one that they're, the areas of DeFi that need more solving are like capital efficiency. And certainly Uni V3 like starts to accomplish that by being, you know, allowing consumer preference to say, hey, where, what continuum of the curve do you want to provision liquidity based on your interpretation of correlation of said assets, right, as a pair. But, you know, Sushi's approach to capital efficiency is much different through like options and like Hashi and Bento Box. And so in my mind, it's just sort of a different a different approach to capital efficiency. Ultimately, what the consumer most and the liquidity provider most cares about is, you know, being able to maximize fees. And certainly that might be possible in B3, but I think there is still a lot of room for innovation in this field of capital efficiency. And we've, you know, I'm personally interested in seeing different approaches to that. Um, and so I think by virtue of that, you're gonna, there is a possibility to have potentially competing AMMs and look, it's a vast area, right? And so I think what you, I think need to understand is that uh, from a liquidity provider standpoint, you know, you might value certain things, right? If you're a, a retail LP, it's different than if you're a treasury LP, if you're a like, you know, a, a much more institutional LP. And so I think there's different uh, approaches and, and for that reason, you're gonna see perhaps multiple amounts. Spencer, it's been woven throughout this conversation today, but we talked about Polygon, other layer twos, right? And Polygon maybe is a side chain, less of a layer two, but the layer twos are coming. It's really interesting to see those of us, all of us here have been in this space for a bit through the trajectory of Ethereum. The beginning, they said smart contracts would never work. No one would use them, right? Then Ethereum got so full and so successful that that became sort of the, the problem is how are we going to scale Ethereum. And now we have things like Binance Chain launching with an EVM, smart contracts, instant, massive uh, you know, transaction, Polygon, kind of the same. Now we're on the cusp of what David and I have been calling Layer 2 Summer. We've got Arbitrum, we've got Optimism, we've got lots of experimentation with the Starkware uh, stuff going on. Talk to us about what you see ahead for the next three to six months in Layer 2. Is it here? Is it coming? Is it going to make a big difference? What do you think, Spencer? Um, yeah, I, I definitely think we're. It's it's going to be. It, it seems like a lot of these projects are kind of marching towards a mainnet all around the same time. And um, I think to Polygon's credit and and even BSC, um, they've kind of showed the playbook of how to get users um, at least to to like take a tour of their blockchain, right? And it starts with some type of um, fork of a you know battle tested DeFi app that lives on ethereum and it's you know either juiced with liquidity mining rewards and even sometimes subsidized by the underlying um chain itself right so like giving matic rewards on top of cc rewards that's a great incentive for people to come over and, and try it um and then you kind of couple that with the infrastructure 
if it's an EVM chain, you can use things like MetaMask. You have block explorers that kind of plug in. Um, and it's a, it's a user experience that feels very, very similar to Ethereum. So yeah, I think it's, it's going to be madness, frankly. Um, I'm, I'm curious about what happens after that, right? When, when the dust settles, uh, what was sticky and what was not, which users actually stayed, were they mercenaries and just going to wherever the hottest yield farm was, or, um, you know, are, are they a different type of user kind of entirely? So yeah, it's, it's, um, it's going to be fascinating. Spencer, you use the word madness, which I think is very proximate to the word mania. And then you also just indicated that there's going to be a bunch of yield farms around. Uh, and so one of my, uh, things that I've been speculating about is, uh, it's, People tend to issue tokens in this space. Uh, and so I'm kind of thinking that every single L2 will have a token. Uh, and if they have a token, that means they'll need to distribute it. Uh, and so uh, Santiago, how do you think all these L2s are going to distribute the tokens? What, what's the distribution plan, the logical distribution plan that you see coming for all of these L2s? Yeah, I think, uh, well, first of all, I think there's a, some like uncertainty if some l2s will issue tokens i think i can't think of any network that has been successful without a token so like you know um for that reason i think every l2 will have a token um purely for governance or for other reasons on the distribution side i think like we can look at precedents on what has been a successful like uh distribution strategy i think most recently you've seen projects like badger and others and gitcoin distribute tokens in a much more sensible manner based on certain criteria not just providing liquidity but also what are going to be good stewards of governance uh that are going to be active community active in the community active in governance and i think uh you know for an l2 what, what is most important right well you have you want to attract partners right you want to attract apps to come on board and so distributing to those treasuries and those users might be good um, um as well as you know the underlying users so i think uh obviously as we all know and are in for the space you know being able to distribute those tokens um you know widely is is also important and so um yeah i think um you you will probably see some like guild farming opportunities uh purely to distribute this to a wide a variety of users. Vance, we just had you on the podcast, so mm -hmm. I know you're bullish layer two, right? And I know you've got some stuff to say about it. Um, I want to ask this question, right? I, I feel like in crypto, if you zoom out, we've seen a couple of eras. We've seen first the, the era of Bitcoin, where we discovered digital scarcity. Then we saw the era of Ethereum, where we discovered sort of smart contracts and DeFi was born. Is layer two unlocking another new era is it that big is it that important is it that impactful what, what how would you characterize layer two it's unlocking a lot i think it unlocks both good and bad um so you know the the good is you know high transaction throughput uh a means to kind of port ethereum culture you know forward in a way that doesn't you know crush the base layer um and just new primitives that we can all build and enjoy um, in this new financial system, that that's definitely the good. The bad is basically, um, you know, if it, and I was talking to some friends from China last night. I was like, you know, how's BSC doing? Is it still interesting? You know, do you guys trade on it? They're basically like, no, you know, people got rugged too much. Retail stopped coming onto the platform in Weibo. You know, people in Chinese, you know, calling for consumer protection against Binance and CZ. Like the, these things, uh, I, I think layer twos oftentimes think that they are competing against each other, but really, they're competing against not blowing themselves up and, and developing the wrong culture that turns users off. 
And so I, I think that's kind of the bad unlock that a lot of these layer twos will have to grapple with. Um, and I think, you know, BSC and, and kind of the relative death of that has, has largely been indicative of that trend. And so I think, you know, there's a, this idea that we're just going to open up the theme park and people are going to come in and have a blast. But like, in reality, you know, we have to make sure the rides are constructed the right way. You know, people aren't getting their heads chopped off on a roller coaster. Like, that's kind of how <laughs> we lose the layer two battle um, yeah. in the near term. Yeah. In the really long term, I think the, the big thing is how do you productionize and utilize MEV? Um, that is basically the, the financial where the rubber meets the road in terms of porting Ethereum culture. Are you giving it to people that are not supportive to the ecosystem? Are you giving it to the lowest common denominator developers so that they can, you know, keep building their little dinky DeFi app that may one day become something big? And I think that's where kind of, you know, we end up long term. But uh, there's going to be a lot of tokens issued before we get there. Guys, I want well, to I would, go ahead, Santana. If I could just add something to that. I mean, yep. for me, L2s are really like, you know, not Binance marching. Like, I appreciate like definitionally, like they might be included in that. But for me, like L2s are like arbitrary and optimism um, and, and, and uh, like Starkware. Like these are things that, you know, are provide the same sort of security guarantees for an L1, but also allow for much higher throughput. And, and I think for that reason, Ethereum is migrating from dial up to broadband. And I think most people don't appreciate how explosive that will be. So if you think about like, you know, when you have those brick phones, people want to pay tons of money for like dial up internet and your DeFi has largely been that, you know, you're paying high transaction fees, but it provides a lot of utility. Now imagine a world where that collapses orders of magnitude. What's that going to do? Like Binance Smart Chain was just a foreshadowing event of what will happen in Ethereum. Guys, this has been a really awesome panel, and I want to finish off with a more high-level question. Uh, you guys have all been in DeFi since DeFi was created in, in December of 2017 with MakerDAO. That's kind of when I think DeFi was really created. How has DeFi changed your life? As in, like, we all have these insanely awesome DeFi protocols right at our fingertips, right? They're inside our computer. They're just a few ledger presses away. Uh, how, do, how has that changed your life? Spencer, let's start with you. Yeah, I think um, for starters, it, it's it's changed my life because um, DeFi kind of offers, frankly, investment opportunities that were otherwise unimaginable to me and other participants, right? I think there is so much low-hanging fruit, but also just kind of meaty um, projects out there to take on where um, anyone in, in the world can can access these opportunities too, right? Like, And that's really important. Um, but I think the biggest thing is probably just the mission. Um, we, the idea that we are creating a financial system that is owned and operated by users, I think is really important. And it kind of transcends even making money or, um, um, you know, it, it, we're talking about how like society is gonna change. And so I think that's giving me a mission because I, we now have a blueprint to get us there. It's very, very early. Um, but it's definitely changed my life. Santiago, how has DeFi changed your life? Yeah, for me, it's sort of been a privilege to be part of um, a space where, you know, one, it doesn't discriminate. No one cares where you come from, who you are, what you look like, if you went to Harvard or community college or didn't even go to college. And I've seen that firsthand. Like, I feel like interacting with these developers, like hey, someone like Hayden, no experience coding and then teaches himself how to code and just built the most powerful, like the most popular, one of the most valuable DeFi applications that is rivaling Coinbase. Like just think about that to me, blows my mind. And I think it's very emblematic of web three and open source systems where it really is the best 
way to express human ingenuity and creativity at a global scale. And then you latch on top of that, the ability to transfer value. And I think the combination of that, and you're seeing with NFTs and artists being discovered, we just hired a guy who's 18 years old, was anonymous on Twitter, and I found him on Twitter, and now he works at Parify. And to me, that's that's the most explosive thing of, look, if DeFi works, great. If it doesn't work, I think generally this idea of open source systems where human talent is matched by capital in the most efficient way is here to stay, and that's very explosive. And that's like why I'm here. Vance, same question. How has DeFi changed your life? Um, for the better, for sure. Um, <laughs> the Vance doesn't sleep. <laughs> yeah. Less sleep for sure. Um, I think like the financial returns have been cool. Um, and I always thought like, you know, once I made X amount of money, I would like go and, and chill on an island or something. Um, but like that has kind of caused me to, to kind of reflect on like what I actually want to do and, and you know, what is actually the purpose of, of what we're doing. And just like working at Framework every single day, you know, with Michael, the rest of the crew and, and actually doing something that, you know, if you work in a big tech company, it kind of feels like um, you're just like in this little cog, you're this little like box that you can't really get out of. Um, the DeFi is basically infinitely expansive and inclusive, and you can really make it your own or, or what you want out of it. And, and I think just, you know, echoing what Spencer said, just that purpose and that mission is really kind of the thing that's that's really changed the most, um, you know, from from kind of the, uh, the pre-DeFi days. Uh, yeah. Guys, uh, these stories are so cool. Uh, David, I hope you scratched your itch. This was an incredible <laughs> panel. Just want to thank all the panelists for hanging out with us and sharing your stories and, and your insights. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. That guys, was fun. Yeah, it, look, guys, uh, you know, I decided the same thing as these these panelists about five years ago. I was like, I missed the early days of the internet. There's no way I'm going to miss the next financial revolution. That's why we are all here. That is why you are watching Bankless. If you enjoyed this panel, make sure you smash the like button and subscribe. David, I said it this time. <laughs> we For got the first time, we got it. <laughs> <laughs> of course, uh, risks and disclaimers, everyone. None of this was financial advice. ETH is risky, crypto is risky, so is DeFi. You could certainly lose what you put in, but we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we're glad you're with us on the bankless journey. Thanks a lot. <laughs>